Good morning and welcome to Fellowship Nashville. My name is Mark and I serve as one of the pastors here. And it's my privilege to serve as your tour guide this morning as we walk together through the pages of the Gospel of John. Now, perhaps a more appropriate text this morning would have been Genesis chapter 6 um, with Noah and the ark, but with all the rain we've been getting. But we're going to be in John chapter 8 together today. Before we get there, um, you know, I w- if you've watched any television in the last couple months, you've seen these commercials. And they're, they're some of my favorite commercials on TV right now. They're by Progressive Insurance, and they feature a guy named Dr. Rick, who's a life coach helping to prevent people from becoming their parents. Are, are you familiar with those, those commercials? Okay, quite a few of you have seen them. You know, one of my favorite ones, favorite ones of those commercials is um, Dr. Rick with some of his mentees, and, and they're at what appears to be a Home Depot, and um, a, a young person with bright blue dyed hair walks past the group, and, and Dr. Rick is attempting to keep them from commenting on it, you know? We all see it. We all see it. But, but the mentees just can't help themselves, and one blurts out, blue! His hair's Blue! And then the commercial cuts to the narrator saying, you know, we, we can't help you, we can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto with us. When one of my, so when one of my oldest, not one of my oldest, I guess she is one of my oldest, when my oldest daughter, um, Ellie, um, recently died, her, and she's hiding right now, <laughs> recently dyed a portion of her hair pink, I, I simply couldn't help myself. When she would walk into the room, I would say, pink, her hair's pink. So if you would, pray for my kids, you know, that they wouldn't have to go through too much therapy to recover from my parenting. I would, I would greatly appreciate that. But isn't it uncanny how when we grow older, we oftentimes begin to resemble our parents. We even begin to adopt some of the same mannerisms. I was eating breakfast the other day, eating cereal, um, had my spoon in my right hand, I'm right-handed, and I was, I was eating my Cheerios, and I, I started doing this with my left hand, um, just kind of rocking back and forth at the breakfast table, rubbing my left knee with my, with my left hand, and, and, I was like, and I caught myself. What am I doing? That's exactly what my dad would do when he would sit down and eat cereal. He would just start rocking back and forth and rub his, I don't know why, is this programmed in my genes or something? And I was just doing it subconsciously. As much as we might try to fight it, it's inevitable. Nature and nurture are very powerful things. And to one extent or another, we seem to turn into an eerily similar version of our parents. The proverbial apple does not fall far from the tree, does it? But as we will learn in our text of Scripture this morning, what's true in the physical realm is even more true in the spiritual realm. We will inevitably begin to resemble our spiritual father, which will either be for us a very frightening truth or a very comforting truth this morning. Depending on the identity of your spiritual father, you will either be spiritually free or you will be spiritually enslaved. One spiritual father leads to life and freedom, fullness, joy, eternal life. The other leads to emptiness, slavery, eternal death. 
And Jesus lays out this dichotomy for us very plainly in our text of Scripture today in John chapter 8. So let's read it together, beginning with verse 31. If you would, go ahead and stand as we read God's Scripture together. Verse 31 of John chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be up on the screen. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Lost my place. Okay. Jesus said to them, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not from my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he Lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Here's the answer. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not from God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look at this fight scene in Scripture. Lord, open our hearts to the truth that you would teach us today. Lord, we read here that truth can set us free, and so we ask that you would sink truth into our hearts this morning as we look into your word. May the power of your Spirit do just that for us. Help me to get out of the way and let your text speak. Speak words of life and freedom this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, our scripture today is a pretty hard-hitting passage. This is a conflict scene, and Jesus doesn't pull any punches here while he drops some serious, serious truth bombs while he talks. And, and through this passage, we're going to learn that there's really only two categories of people in the world. There, there's Savior justified, and then there's self-justified. Say that with me. Savior justified and self-justified. And they're, they're, so there's those who admit that they are sinners and in need of a Savior and those who don't. The latter are enslaved while the former are set free because each category are offspring of a very different spiritual father. 
And as we walk through our passage today, we're going to be making four observations, and then I'll share one takeaway and one question. So give me your hands. Show number four. Okay, how many observations? Four observations. How many takeaways? One takeaway and one question. So all you need to remember to take notes this morning is 411, okay? I, I thought about 911, but then we'd be here too long. So um, 411. But before we dive into the text, I want to catch us up as to where we are in the text of John. I'm not assuming that all of you have, have been here every week. So where is Jesus and where, what's the context of this conversation that he is having? Well, well, having. well back in chapter 7, we, we learned that Jesus has, has made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. Not booze, booths. Enunciation is important. Um, this, this feast is also called the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot in Hebrew. And this feast occurs in the fall and celebrates the pilgrimage of the Jewish people through the wilderness after their miraculous salvation, their miraculous deliverance by God from slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and into the promised land. And while they were in the wilderness, they lived in tents and tabernacles. Um, they set up camp all through the wilderness. And, and so during this seven-day commemorative feast, you know what they would do? They would recreate the scene. They would all dwell in tents or tabernacles, hence the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. And all throughout this feast, Jesus has been revealing himself as the true fulfillment of the feast itself. You know, there, there was a, a point in the feast where they would commemorate the water that God provided from the rock in the wilderness, And at that point where they're commemorating that, Jesus loudly cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And at night, they would light the lamps at the temple and it would just glow. Philip showed um, pictures of that last week. And as they did that to commemorate God leading them through the wilderness by a pillar of fire at night, what did Jesus say? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is presenting himself as the fulfillment of this feast. And John tells us in chapter 8, verse 30, And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So as Jesus reveals himself, as he tells them, I'm the fulfillment of all this, Many people are drawn to him. They, they begin to receive his word. They, they begin to accept his testimony. They're, they're leaning in here. They're expressing faith. They're trusting in who he is. But we need to recognize that there's also opposition in this crowd. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are also there, and they're looking for an, an excuse to arrest him. They want to get rid of him. They want to silence him. Quite frankly, they want to murder him. So, so there's definitely a mixed crowd that Jesus is addressing in this passage, and he's going to speak to different segments of this crowd throughout our passage. With that in mind, let's dive into verse 31 again, where he begins the dialogue by speaking first to those who are leaning in, those who are believing, okay? So verse 31, let's read this again together. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. Set you free. A very familiar verse of scripture here. 
You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, so Jesus turns initially to those who are leaning in, those who are expressing faith, and he says this, here's how that you know that you will be my genuine disciples. You'll, you'll receive my word, it'll, it'll come in, and you will come into it. You'll abide in it. That's how you know you're my genuine disciples. You'll abide in my word. You'll, you'll settle down, make your home in my word. You'll dwell in it. You'll take, residence, take up residence in it. You'll love it. You'll live in it. And just as you're abiding in tents and tabernacles during this feast, you will abide in my word. And if you do, then you're my true disciples. You're authentic. You're real. And as you continue to receive and abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So observation number one here is this. Jesus offers freedom to his followers. Jesus offers freedom. Say that, say that with me. Jesus offers freedom to his followers. And the natural question that, that should pop into our minds when we observe that is, is what? Well, what kind of freedom, Jesus? <laughs> what kind of freedom are you talking about here? You know, freedom from what? Is he talking about physical or political freedom? I mean, we're, we're Americans. Um, we already have that. We, we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. So, so can we tune out now, Jesus? Or is he referring to something else? Hold on. Hold on to, um, to that question. The answer will soon become clear. But, but for now, let's simply observe that Jesus is saying all of this at the Feast of Tabernacles. And let's recall that this feast is about celebrating freedom from slavery in Egypt. Okay? It's remembering and commemorating how God delivered them through the wilderness, living in tents, to the promised land. It's sort of like the Jewish version of 4th of July here in America, okay? Now remember, there's a mixed audience. And right here in verse 33, the skeptics in the crowd begin to raise their voice. Let's read that together. Verse 33, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Notice the self-justifying tone in their voice. Remember the two types of people, what are they? Say it out loud. There's Savior justified and self-justified. What kind of tone are you hearing now? Uh, kind of a self-justifying, we're, we're offspring of Abraham. We aren't slaves. We're God's chosen people. Sure, our forefathers were enslaved back in Egypt, but that was then, this is now, this is the whole point of why we're celebrating this feast. We're free. Granted, the Romans are here as an occupying force, but we're not enslaved to them, Jesus. What are you talking about? Verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So this confirms that Jesus isn't talking about physical chains here, is he? He's talking about spiritual bondage. The slavery of sin. Jesus says, anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin is controlling your actions. Sin has its grip on you. Sin is enslaving you. And you need to be liberated. You need a savior. Observation number two. Jesus is speaking about spiritual freedom from bondage to sin. Go ahead and say that out loud with me. Jesus is speaking about spiritual freedom from bondage to sin. 
So, so when Jesus said to his disciples that the truth will set them free, he wasn't talking about physical freedom. He wasn't talking about political freedom. What is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual freedom. Jesus says, I can give you an even greater freedom than what we're celebrating here at this feast of tabernacles, a true and greater freedom. If you take up residence and dwell in the truth of my word, if you receive my word and dwell in it, if you dwell in my promises, my teaching, you can be really free, spiritually free. And then he goes on to say in verse 35, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. So Jesus shifts the metaphor here a little bit, and he implies the reason why you have a sin problem is because you have a status problem. You're slaves instead of sons. You think you're sons, but you aren't. You've just boldly, boldly declared to me that you're sons of Abraham, but, but are you really? Are you really? Can you be so sure about that? Can you be certain that you're true offspring of Abraham and not slaves? Are you sure that you're going to inherit the blessings of God that are to come and promised to the sons of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham? Here's how you can know. Here's how you can know. If the true son sets you free, then you are free indeed. Only then will you be true offspring of Abraham instead of slaves. Verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, this is Jesus talking, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. So so Jesus does admit here, yes, you technically are offspring of Abraham, physically speaking. That's true, but you're not really spiritually free. And how do I know that? Because you're seeking to kill me. The, the, The sin of murder has its grip on you. You're rejecting my word that comes directly from God, who is my father. It bounces right off of you and finds no place in you. So you're really not free. And therefore, Abraham, even though he's your physical ancestor, is not your spiritual father. The crowd obviously takes issue with this. And they self-righteously object in verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Notice the self-justifying tone again. But then Jesus um, punches them in the face with some hard truth here, okay? Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now that you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth I heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. True Jewishness, Jesus says, is not a bloodline. It's a faith and obedience line. And if you've ever wondered where the Apostle Paul got his theology, he got it right here from Jesus. When he, he, he writes in, in the book of Romans chapter 9 verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all who are children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. Paul got that directly from Jesus here in John chapter 8, where Jesus is drawing this clear distinction between the physical descendants of Abraham and the spiritual descendants of Abraham. 
And he implies that even physical descendants of Abraham can have a spiritual father other than God. Who is that other spiritual father? And Jesus is about to make this very, very clear. But first, the Jewish religious leaders punch back at Jesus. So, so grab the popcorn, okay? This is escalating, all right? This is going to escalate. It's going to get good. So um, the religious leaders are, are ready to take their blow. Let's, let's continue in the middle of verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. This, this is a less than subtle jab at Jesus. It's a calculated right hook meant to inflict maximum damage. We were not born of sexual immorality. Implication? Jesus, you were. We know the rumors. We know that Mary got pregnant when she was not married to Joseph. We assume Joseph is a noble man. Therefore, you were born in sexual immorality. You have more than one father, Jesus. You are an illegitimate bastard child. But we have one Father, God Himself. And this is where Jesus unlaces His boxing gloves, sets them down, and He punches back and names their true spiritual Father. Still got your popcorn? Okay, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Here's the answer. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your Father, who? The devil. And your will is to do your Father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So observation number three right here. If God isn't your spiritual father, the devil is. Say that with me. If God isn't your spiritual father, the devil is. In this fight scene, Jesus delivers the knockout blow here. The reason that you are rejecting me and that you won't accept my word, that you won't dwell in my word, is because you are sons of the devil himself. The, the devil was a murderer from the beginning, and what are you trying to do? You're trying to murder me. <laughs> See the connection. You're resembling your spiritual father. You won't accept the truth of my testimony. You're believing lies, so this proves that you're sons of the father of lies himself. Your spiritual father is the devil. Mic drop. Boom. If God isn't your spiritual father, the devil is. You're enslaved. Verse 45, Jesus continues. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe in me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe in me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Pretty clear, right? You are not of God. 
keep in mind that Jesus is saying this to religious people. Very religious and moralistic people. Nobody in the crowd that Jesus is talking to here is an atheist. They're all theists. They all believe in God. In our culture, we would probably call them good people. So observation number four is this. It's possible to be very religious, yet very enslaved. Say that with me. It's possible to be very religious, yet very enslaved. This passage confronts us with a frightening truth. That it's quite possible to be religious. It's quite possible to have a rich heritage of faith to attend synagogue every Saturday, or to put it in our context, to attend church every Sunday, to have Bible verses memorized, to serve as a ministry volunteer, to even be a leader in the church, to think that you're okay with God and yet be completely lost, spiritually speaking, far from the heart of God and enslaved by Satan himself. These moralistic religious leaders who are fighting with Jesus here were quite confident of their own right standing with God. We aren't slaves. We're offspring of Abraham. Who are you to tell us any different? We weren't born of sexual immorality. We're not sinners like you. God is our Father. Notice the self-justifying tone. What are the two types of people? Savior justified, self-justified. Self-righteous pride is dripping from every word out of their mouths, and it's an all-too-familiar tone. Of course I'm okay with God. I teach Sunday school. I was raised in a Christian home. I give a tithe of my income. I go to church every Sunday. I support missionaries. I've read through the Bible in a year. I'm against abortion. I volunteer to help the homeless. I'm a champion for social justice. I'm a good person. I'm better than those people. I'm a deacon. I'm a pastor. I, 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 I. Remember, there's two kinds of people, Savior justified and self-justified. And you can be very, very religious and very, very lost. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are sobering words, aren't they? These are frightening words. One takeaway. Self-justifying religion cannot save you. Say that with me. Self-justifying religion can't save you. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can save you. That's why John says in 
in, earlier in the book, in chapter 1, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, do you know the verse, what does it say? Children of God. Who are, not born, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So, so how do you know that you're a child of God who's been set free instead of a child of the devil who's still enslaved? It all comes back to Jesus, my friends. It all comes back to him. Do you believe in him? Are you trusting in him? Are you receiving his word? Are you abiding in it? Are you acknowledging your sin and your bro- brokenness? Are you looking to Jesus to be your savior? Or is something else functioning as your savior? Are you trusting in your own moral performance? Your own resume of all the things you've done? Or are you trusting in the moral performance of Jesus on your behalf? The two are very different. Self-justifying religion can't save you. Only Jesus can. And when you trust in Jesus, here's the wonderful truth. You become a child of God. You move from slavery to sonship. As we wrap up this morning, I I said I would ask one clarifying question. So that brings us to that point. Here's the one clarifying question that I'd like us all to consider this morning, is that's this. Are you living for God's approval or from God's approval? Are you living for God's approval or from God's approval. As a child of God, everything changes. You you start living from God's approval instead of for God's approval. You realize that in Jesus, you're already loved. You're already approved. You're already secure. Your standing is set. You don't have anything to earn. Jesus already paid the debt. By grace, through faith, his righteousness has been credited to you. And now when Jesus, or when God looks at you, he does not see your sin. He sees the righteousness of his perfect son, Jesus. And he smiles on you as his son and his daughter. There is no future version of yourself that God's going to be more pleased in than who you are right now in Christ, period. That, my friends, is the gospel. And that is the truth that sets you free. It changes the motivations of your heart. It works on you from the inside out, not the outside in. You no longer obey out of fear, but you obey because you're loved. You begin to sacrifice and serve others, not out of duty so that God is somehow more happy with you. You begin to serve out of delight because you're already loved as a son, as a daughter, unconditionally, no strings attached. Sin loses its vice grip on you and becomes much less attractive. You are set free by the Son, and you are free indeed. But, my friends... And this is so true here in the South where there's a deep-fried religious layer of Christianity over everything, okay? Not so much out in California. Uh, we have a guest here from, well, from California. She just moved here three weeks ago. Meet her. She's nice. Um, 
But here in the South, we have this deep-fried religious layer over everything, and there are many, many self-justified religious people who come to church every Sunday who are still enslaved. Many, many religious people who are caught in an unending cycle of self-help and behavior modification, attempting to be their own saviors in essence, trying to change themselves from the outside in and save themselves by their own moral performance. And here's what that enslaving cycle looks like. Go ahead and leave this slide up for, for a while here. And I'll admit that I lived in this enslaving cycle for the majority of my life. I grew up in the church. My, my grandfather was a, a missionary. My grandparents on one side were, were missionaries. My grandfather on, and grandmother on the other side, he was a pastor, and a, he built churches and, and planted churches. And so I have this rich heritage of faith in my family, and yet I, I was enslaved in this cycle for, for a majority of my life. I was living for God's approval, trying to modify my behavior instead of living from God's approval. I, I had learned the data points of the gospel on an intellectual level, but they hadn't sunk into the depths of my heart and transformed me from the inside out. So when I thought I had made progress spiritually, usually by trying to be more self-disciplined, pulling up my, myself up by my own bootstraps, doing more, trying harder, what, what would I experience if I had success? Self-righteous pride, because I did it, right? Like, yeah, look what I did. And then that went hand in hand with sort of a judgmental attitude to everybody else who couldn't achieve the same level as I did. I would perceive them as not having as much self-discipline. And inevitably when I failed, which I did, I failed to live up to the, the moral code that's given to us in Scripture. I, I failed to even live up to some of my own standards that I had set. What would I feel? Yeah, self-loathing shame. What, what does self-righteous um, pride and self-loathing shame have in common? It's the first word, self, okay? Where's the focus? It's on being my own savior, right? Right? And, and when I would feel self-loathing shame, what would, what would that cause me to do? Yeah, I, I would want to go hide and, and not really let others know the true condition of my heart or give up altogether, and so, for much of my life, my version of Christianity was not much more than a self-focused and enslaving and utterly exhausting cycle of pride, shame, pride, shame, pride, shame, pride, shame. It's enslaving. It's exhausting. But God never meant us to live by, like that. <laughs> as his sons, as his daughters. Thankfully, by God's grace, he took me through a variety of life experiences and circumstances that kind of kicked the slats out from underneath me. Broke me of my self-reliance. And the data points that I knew up here about the gospel, I had Bible verses memorized. <laughs> you know, I had books of the Bible memorized. But, but, but those things started to sink down into my heart and change me from the inside out. I'm God's son. I'm loved. I'm approved. God smiles on, on me, not because of anything I'm doing for him, not because of my moral performance, but because I'm his, period. Whom the son sets free is free indeed. It changes things. 
Perhaps your experience is similar. As you come to know God's love for you, the immensity of God's love for you, you will know the truth, the truth of the gospel, and that truth will set you free. My friends, living from God's approval is freedom. It's freedom. He loves you. There's no future version of yourself that he'll love more. (laughs) You're already loved in Christ. But living for God's approval is slavery. It's slavery. God loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Pray with me. God, thank you for this passage. Lord, thank you for the fact that um, you love us so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, took the punishment that we deserved so that we can be free from bondage to sin, so that we can have the hope of resurrection life. Father, help us to live not for your approval, but from your approval. Lord, may the truth of the gospel sink into our hearts and begin to do its work. May we move from unbelief to belief in every dark corner of our hearts that the gospel is true, that nothing we do will make you love us any more, nothing we do will make you love us any less in Christ. But we're perfectly loved, we're perfectly accepted, we're perfectly secure. May we live from that place. Lord, as we sing this song in closing, remind us of who we are and whose we are in Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen.